So we are going to go in the Old Testament to the book of Esther. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to the book of Esther. Uh, basically, if you don't know where Esther is, you can go to the middle of that big book, Psalms, and go back a couple books and you'll find Esther. There's, a, there's Psalms, and then before that, there's the book of Job, which is actually Job, but it looks like Job. And then before that is Esther. So you just go back a couple books and you'll find it. If you only have a New Testament, we give New Testaments out here. There are full copies of the Bible in the resource room, and you're welcome to grab one of those and pick one of those up. So Esther, and we're going to do the first chapter this morning. So New Year. It's a new year. Sometimes for, for us emotionally, that can feel like a fresh start, a blank page, a new opportunity. And, and I hope that it does. Um, for many of us, as we make resolutions, it means trying to give up bad habits or, or get away from situations or circumstances, maybe even bad relationships. Anyone here feel like they have a relationship or two in their life that could use like a breath of fresh air, maybe some health, maybe some renewal? Anybody here feel like you have a relationship in, in your life that could maybe use some, some health in it? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. A couple of you are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to look at healthy versus unhealthy relationships um, today. And we're going to look at it from the Word of God here. Healthy relationships, the fingerprint of them, the earmark of healthy relationships. Would you know a healthy relationship if you saw it? Would you know it if you felt it? Do you just assume that the people who are close to you, because they are close to you, they are healthy relationships? What does the Bible have to say about relationships? And so we're going to look at one of those things today. I'll just tell you in general, healthy relationships are sources of peace, of hope, of rest, of encouragement. They are stuff that builds you up. Not every single interaction is, you know, fairy tales and butterflies. Healthy relationships are real, but healthy relationships are not relationships that wear you out. If you've got relationships in your life that are draining you dry, you've got relationships in your life where you feel like every single time you interact with that person, you're just getting attacked. These are signs of unhealthy relationships. And God calls us as believers, as children of the light, to walk in the light. And part of walking in the light is understanding how to have a good relationship with other people. Did you know... You can have a good relationship with someone who doesn't have a good relationship with you. Did you know you can have a healthy relationship with someone who's trying to have an unhealthy relationship with you? Did you know that? Your ability to be healthy, to be happy, to be at rest, to be at peace is not dependent on anyone else's decision. Isn't that cool? But too many times we live like, unless that other person gets their act together, I'm doomed to live in this unhealthy wrestling match that is draining the life out of me. So we're going to look at the first chapter of the book of Esther today and see something about relationships that pull at you. Ones where you spend a lot of energy but seem to make no progress. And so if that's ever been you or that is you, hopefully this will be of some help to you today. The the book of Esther is the story of a holiday. And so I thought it was apropos coming out of the holiday season from Thanksgiving right into Christmas, right into New Year's, coming out of holidays to, to look at a book that talks about how a holiday began. And like many great stories, um, this story comes out of some really bad circumstances. The children of Israel have been overrun. They have been defeated. They are not in charge of themselves anymore. Other nations have come and taken them away from their homes, from their possessions. They are essentially slaves. 
they have been deported. And they've been away from home for a long time, so much so that new generations of Israelites are being born, having never seen the promised land, having never lived at home, having always lived as people under the control of other nations, godless nations, heathen nations. And so as the story of Esther begins, we find a snapshot of a time when the Persian Empire was in charge. The Persian Empire. And so we're talking about maybe 500 years before Jesus was born, about in that time zone there. And what we're going to see is that, and I hope that you see this as we go through the whole book, what you will see and what they celebrate with the, with the holiday of Purim, right, is that what it looks like is not always what it is when God is involved. When your trust is in God, when you claim the name of Christ, what it looks like is not always what it is. As we go through chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 of this book, the whole arc of this book is that the people in power, the bad people, are going to destroy the weak people, the good people. That's the whole arc of this story until the end when God redeems. Too often, we as people of faith look down the road of life and we say that what it looks like must be what it is. And what you just did is eliminate the power of God from your story. I would encourage you, no matter what it looks like, do not believe what you see more than you believe who you know you can trust. Your God is able. Your God is for you. And so He is good. He brings deliverance. And so God will use this story to talk about this weak, conquered people who are the the targets of hate from powerful people. There will be a setup for their total annihilation that looks hopeless for them. They are completely helpless. And then God uses, of all people, a young woman Someone who feels unqualified, unprepared, weak, and literally shaking in fear. And God uses her to save everyone. Isn't that like God? To say, well, this person can't do anything. And God says, well, it's not about that person anyway. It's about knowing that I am faithful. And I pray that you will see that as we go through this story. And so Esther, the book of Esther is a very unique book. Um, partly because it's the only book in the Bible where God is not specifically mentioned. Isn't that interesting? There's a book in the Bible where God is not specifically mentioned. There is no mention of the name of God in this book. And yet, much like our lives, God is seen in how He works in the lives of those who trust Him, in the lives of His people. And so it's not always that we have to talk about God because sometimes people over-talk about God but underlive it. You know, And so in this story, what we're going to see is people who choose to follow God by faith, who choose to do what God asked them to do, who refuse to bow to anyone else but God. And so as we go through that story, I hope that you'll see that. Now, the first chapter really is the setup to this story. It doesn't do a lot as far as moving the story forward. It tells us why there's a vacancy in the position of queen, and because of that, Esther, the the, the woman who is the hero of the story, has a chance to enter the story because of what happens in chapter 1. And all the time when I have read the book of Esther, I've always thought, 
man, I would hate to preach Esther chapter 1 because you can't get anything out of it. There's no application for chapter 1 because it's just a story about weird stuff, about people, you know, just regular, normal life stuff. It happens to set up the whole story, but there's nothing we can really take from it. Except this year when I read it, I thought, wow, look at that. That's really intriguing because it's so familiar. It's so real life, right? It's, it's unbelievable how many times what happens in Esther 1 happens in our relationships. What you're going to see is that what happens here is the cause of countless broken marriages, of wedges between parents and children, of deep misunderstandings between dear friends. It is a weapon in the enemy's arsenal that gets us from people who have the, the, the birthright for healthy relationships into these dysfunctional relationships. And it's a great weapon because it actually is the natural way that human beings in their flesh relate to one another. It's our natural tendency but it always brings the same result. The harder we do this, the more we try this, the more we get broken, distant, wounded relationships. And so we're going to read through the story. Hopefully it's a, a, something that teaches you and blesses you, fills you up like it did for me. So we're going to start in chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and we're going to read about this story of this powerful king, uh, King Xerxes. You might have a different version of the Bible. It gives the, uh, the Hebrew name, Ahasuerus, uh, but they both refer to this, to this same king. So here's what it says. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full, excuse me, 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, <coughs> the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement. Wow, of, of porphyry, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. All right, so we have this story. It's the beginning of the story. It's about a king that history calls Xerxes. Okay? And Xerxes, uh, by the other name Ahasuerus, is a familiar king in history. Uh, he is the son of King Darius. Now, you might recognize the name King Darius if you've ever heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. The one who put Daniel in the lion's den is King Darius. Okay? So Xerxes is his son. So this happens after that story that we know about of Daniel in the lion's den. History tells us he was a powerful king, but not a very good man. He was publicly cruel to his servants, to his concubines, to his uh, military leaders. He was a very um, self-centered person, a person kind of drunk with power. 
but he ruled this large piece of ground. If you know geography at all, when it talks about India to Kush, what it's talking about is uh, over kind of midway through southern Asia, in the, the, the place of India where we know that, all the way across through Persia, through the Middle East, all the way over to Egypt, the land of Cush, which is now the land of Ethiopia, a large, large kingdom that he ruled over. And he was very, very wealthy. Uh, And so what he did is he throws, the Bible tells us here, he throws a large banquet. Three years into his reign, he throws this big banquet. It is estimated that up to 15,000 people attended this banquet. 15,000. Thousand people at a banquet. Now you've got to be pretty rich to throw a banquet for how long? How many days? Seven days. I mean, there's 180 days he shows his wealth, but seven days he throws a feast. You know, if you've ever put a wedding on for you know a couple hundred people, you know all the details that go into that, right? And all the costs and expense. Seven days for 15,000 people. This king throws a banquet. Very wealthy. Very powerful. And, and it says before that, for six months, 180 days, he puts his power, his wealth on display. He shows everybody how much he has. We hear about the beauty and the gardens and the palace and this gold and silver and couches. And everybody has a gold goblet. Each one is different. It was, it was fashioned you know, uniquely. And so this, this setup to the story, this opening of the story, really are trying to bring across two points. First of all, Xerxes is a powerful king, a great man in the world. That's one. Two, he wants to show it off. He wants everybody to see how powerful he is. And he likes the fact that people, all of his people, are coming through and being amazed and awed at the place that he lives and the money that he has and the feast that he puts on. He loves showing off his wealth and his power. Matter of fact, there's a story in history about when the Greeks were, were fighting the Persians. And the Persians had come across towards Europe to fight the Greeks. And there was a battle that was engaged or whatever. And after the battle was over, the Persians left. The Persian king left his tent on the battlefield, just left his tent there, left it with its decorations and its furniture and everything like that. And the Greeks came into his tent. And what they wrote was that they were baffled by the dazzling wealth inside of this tent. The gold and the curtains and the furniture and all this stuff. They were baffled by it because they thought, why would these Persians with all of this want to conquer? And what they said is, why would they want to come and conquer our Greek poverty? What we have is nothing compared to what they have. Why would they be interested in us? It's really a step down for them come over here and conquer Greece. And so there is this majesty of the Persian Empire that's part of the background of the story. And Xerxes is this king. He has all of this at his disposal. And what does he do? He wants to show it off. And so we see the value that Xerxes holds. And it is a value that we're very familiar with. If you've got it, flaunt it. If you have it, enjoy it. Use it. If you've got the power, if you've got the opportunity... Take it for what it's worth. Get life by the horns. Have everything that you want. Have everything that you can possibly have. Don't hold back. As a matter of fact, the king shows that philosophy as he says to the wine stewards, give them as much wine as they want. In in tradition of this time, there was a governor of the banquet that would initiate the, the, the drinking. Okay, everybody has another round. Everybody has another round. But this king said, no, here's how wealthy I am. I don't care how much you want to drink. 
Have as much as you want. Anytime somebody asks for them, give them another drink. And so that philosophy of have as much as you want, the problem in your life is you just don't have everything that you want. If you could just have it your way, then everything would be right. Does this feel familiar to you? Because there is part of us as human beings that believe this to the core of our soul. That if I could just have the power to make my life how I think it should be, I'd be good. And when I do have the power, when I do have the ability, when I do have the resources, I should use it for what I want. Never hold back. Always go after what you want. If you have the power to satisfy every desire, use it. This is the theme. This is the mantra of Xerxes' kingdom. Probably more for us. We, we don't have that kind of wealth. We don't have that kind of power. But probably more for us is a little more real life. Every bit of power that I have, I'm going to try to use for, to get what I want, what I think is good, what my plans are, my ideas, what I think things should be like. Xerxes has power that is overwhelming and it's intoxicating, it's mesmerizing. People are dazzled by it. And every single one of us as human beings readily believes that lie, that having all we want and having it our way is the path to the best life possible. Don't you? Don't you believe that? If you had everything you wanted your way, that would be the best life possible, right? Except it's not. It's what we think humanly, but it's not what the Bible teaches us about life. And so it shows up. It shows up in relationships. And that's what we're going to apply this to today, in relationships. Because here's what you... If that's part of your soul, and I believe it's part of all of us who we are, then it shows up in relationships because we have part of us that believes that the key to a good relationship is having that relationship how I think it should be and using everything in my power to make this relationship the way I think it should be. Which is fine as long as you have the power and everybody's doing what you think they should do. But how is it on the other end of that? When someone is trying to make you do what they think you should do. Is that a healthy relationship or is that a draining relationship? Does that build you up? Does that fill you up or does that empty you out? See, that's what we're looking at today as we look at this story. And so the mode of many relationships becomes one where people in it are using every power they have to make the relationship what they think is best. It's not always selfish. It's not always evil intentions. It's a faith in you, in yourself, in what you think, in what you see, in what you believe. Xerxes believed it. Xerxes put it on display. Xerxes used it. Now, then we turn to a second part of this story because he's not the only character in this relationship. He has a wife. His wife's name is Vashti, and she is queen. And so pick it up with me at verse tw- uh, 9 down to verse 12. Here's what it says. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and they give their names, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. All right, so we've got this powerful king, and he's married to this very independent woman. 
The Bible gives us her name as Vashti. We don't know for sure that that was her actual name because Vashti means sweetheart. So it may well have been a nickname that everybody knew her by or the king called her or whatever. Uh, As you look in history, there are some suggestions about what her actual name may have been. But Vashti is the name that we use in the story here. And it's only in this first chapter because as this feast goes on, there's a feast that the king throws, but there evidently is a separate feast that his wife throws, that Vashti throws. And she has the women of the palace there. And so That's not really the norm. Usually men and women were together at these large feasts, but for some reason, maybe in a a way to display more power and more wealth, hey, we can not only hold this seven-day feast for 15,000 people, but we can put on another feast at the same time because we just have that kind of money. And so here's Vashti throwing her own feast. And it says, on the seventh day, the king decides, I'm going to send for my wife. I've been showing off my wealth showing off my my home, showing off the food that I have, all the servants that I have. We've been partying. We've been having a good time. I want everybody to envy my life. I want them to see my life. I want them to see me. I want them to see me in, in this frame, in this way, and think, man, that guy has it all. And so in line with that, on day seven, he says, you know what would be the, the, the capstone of this whole thing? If they could see how beautiful my wife is. So he calls for his wife. He sends some servants to go get his wife and to come so he can show her off and, 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 and show everybody how beauty, beautiful she is, show them her beauty. But the queen refuses to come. The queen says, no, I'm not coming. Now, Jewish tradition is that she didn't come because he asked her to come wearing her crown, and the interpretation of the scripture there was that he he asked her to come wearing only her crown, and she, for moral reasons, said, no, I'm not going to do that. But that's not really in here. That's kind of read into this. To me, it's more of a showdown. It's more of a, like, king says come, the wife says, no, I'm not going to come. I think if it were about some moral obligation, she would be seen as more of a hero uh, in the story, more of a, you know, uh, she took a stand for what was right. But really, it just looks like this king, who's been showing everything off, and she's probably right there with him, has said, I also want to show that I have a beautiful wife, and so let's have her come. And she says, no, I'm not going to come, because I don't want to. We have the other side of this typical situation that happens in relationships. When you have people who believe that the, the, the hope for their relationship is to just have things my way, for everybody to just listen to what I think they should do. When that is your hope, what you have with more than one person in a relationship is two people who have two different ideas of the best way to do it. And now you have this one pulling at that one, you should do it like this. And you have this one pulling at that one saying, you should do it like this. And you have a relationship where you're expending a lot of energy trying to get somebody to do what you think they should do, but you're not getting much progress. It is a tug of war between one side and the other. And in that relationship, people begin to act independently of one another. Not in coordination, not in conjunction, but in in, in competition with each other. It's It's a tug of war. Now, sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes God gives each of us the the, the calling and and the power to have the say-so over myself. And so I have to make a call because I believe this is the right thing to do and this is not the right thing to do. I have to do what I believe is right, especially when we're talking about moral things. We're talking about things that that are outside the boundaries of things that God would allow for us. And somebody says, well, I think we should do this. Or or someone who has the say-so says, you need to do that. And you say, I'm not going to do that. 
You know, maybe you find that in your jobs scenarios where uh, the people who are in charge of you ask you to do some shady stuff. You have the right, you have the ability, you have the calling as a believer to say, I'm not going to do that. You don't need to be disrespectful. You don't need to, to, to be critical of other people. You just, but you do need to take a stand. We find a lot of that in the book of Daniel. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bow down to this idol. We're not going to bow down to this idol. Well, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. We'll do whatever you need to do, but we're not going to bow down, right? You have your choices, we have ours, and we're going to make our choices to do what's right. You find that with Daniel. No, no more praying is allowed, and Daniel goes up and prays anyway. And so they throw him into the lion's den. It's, you have your thing, we have, I'm not going to do what you've asked me to do. We find in the New Testament with the apostles, when religious leaders come to them and say, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. You've got to stop talking about Jesus. And the apostles say, listen, you do whatever you think, but we can't stop talking about Jesus. We have to share him with people because he's alive. He's risen from the dead. He's given us hope and life. We have to talk about Jesus. And so we see times in relationships where we have to act independently. But healthy independence is not trying to make the other person do what you think is right. Healthy independence is if you've made that choice, that's yours, but I'm going to make my choice because of what I believe is right. And I'll face whatever comes because of that, whether it's a breaking in relationship or the scenarios we just talked about, whether it's even the threat of death. I'm going to make a choice that I believe in and then I'm going to trust whatever comes from the hand of God, even if it's death itself, right? So there are times in relationships where we have to act independently. But what I would say is in healthy relationships, you're never going to have a relationship that is characterized by power plays. A relationship where it's constantly a tug of war, my way versus your way, Sometimes I hear people talking about an argument that seems so pointless to me because one person remembers it this way and one person remembers it that way. Have you ever had that fight with somebody where it's like, well, you said, and you're like, I didn't say that. And they're like, you absolutely said it. I remember it word for word. And they give you the word for word. And you're like, that's not what I said. I said, ever had that fight? Does that turn out well ever? Has anybody ever had a successful, that's not what I said fight? It's a tug of war. It doesn't get anywhere. And I'm not saying it's one person's fault or the other person's fault. I'm saying we get down to this unhealthy way of interacting with people. You know, In this scenario, you've got a king who says, I'm the king, so you come when I tell you to come. And we've got a queen who says, well, I'm me, and I'm not coming. So we have a tug of war. And, and as that becomes the default way that our relationships work, we begin to fight, we begin to bicker. And James tells us that we, we fight and argue because of our lust, our desire for what we want. We want to be right. We want to be free from blame. We want things our way. And so we fight, and that's what happens. Now, don't brush over this. He's like, oh, this is typical husband and wife. No, this is king and queen. And the, ki- the Persian king took people's heads off all the time. And here is a queen who says, even though I am going to maybe face death for this, I'm not coming, which seems kind of petty, doesn't it? But have you ever dug your heels in knowing that it wasn't going to turn out well for you, but you were just so like, I don't care. I'm going to, I'm going to stand my ground. Even when there was nothing to fight for, even when all that was going to come back was heartache and grief, what, what happens to that? It feels so real. It feels so alive because it's so true to life. And so here's king, here's queen, and they're fighting and, and they are in a tug of war. And so who wins? And that's kind of the rest of this story. So pick it up with me at verse 13 down to the end of the chapter. Here's what it says. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke 
with the wise men who understood the times. They were closest to the king and, and gives his names, the, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people the queen, uh, of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Yeah, exactly, right? Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Oh, that'll work, right? (laughs) The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. All right, so who wins here? Who wins? Well, clearly, Queen Vashti loses, right? She no longer is going to be queen. She loses her position. She loses her power. She is going to be replaced. Clearly, Queen Vashti is out, right? She is the loser. Uh, And so basically the king... His advisors tell him you need to remove her as queen and you need to issue an edict so everyone knows that action has been taken. And so the king does it and because he is more powerful than she is, she is out and he remains king and he gets to choose a new queen. So Vashti loses. But what I would say to you is this, don't assume Xerxes wins. This is the real truth behind the deception, behind the lie about tug-of-war relationships. Even when you win, you lose. Why, what, think about this. What happened to Xerxes? Well, first of all, he was upstaged at his big feast. He called all these people together to show his wealth and his power and his enviable life. And it wound up showing that he couldn't even control his own wife. How about that? He had a great audience that he was, it was all meant to show them how powerful he was and what he wound up showing him was he wasn't very powerful at all. Not really much of a winner. Disrespected in front of anyone, everyone. There were many strong and powerful men, men uh, of military prowess who would have trembled in their boots to, to refuse the king, even in private, even in his, just his chambers let alone in front of 15,000. But the queen does exactly that, and the dishonor is hard to describe. His wife would not obey, and it shakes all these nobles to their core. This can't happen. How can this happen? But it leaves all of his guests with this big question. How powerful can Xerxes be if his wife won't come when he asks her to? On top of that, what he does doesn't really fix it. He removes Vashti, but he's going to, and he's going to find a new queen. But everybody who sees the new queen, they're going to go, oh, that's right. 
Remember Vashti wouldn't do what he told him to do? Uh, yeah, that's right. Vashti wasn't going to do what he asked. Okay, that's, so he had to find somebody else. I hope this one listens to him. Vashti's removal is, is, is meant to communicate power. But in the end, it's just a reminder of the fact that he doesn't control his wife. In the end, Vashti never showed up at the banquet, no matter how powerful he was. And I think sometimes that's what we lose. In relationships, we lose the respect for one another. We lose the ability to let someone else decide what they should do before God. We lose the ability to encourage them to seek God for themselves, to let them be responsible for the choices they need to make. We do, a lot of times, what what the king did here. His solution was, I will issue a new law. And this law is that husbands will be in charge of their home. Let's let's make a rule about it. Let's make it a law, and that's going to fix it. Right? Um, Wasn't the king already in charge? Wasn't there already a law that you have to obey the king? But what we try to do is we try to, okay, let's clarify this. I have the say, not you. Let's clarify this. Remember, we do this with like our history. Remember last time we, we fought? Remember who was right? Remember the last three times we fought? I was right. We try to establish ourselves as the authority. If you are trying to interact in your relationship via authority, you've already lost. Because in this relationship, in this tug-of-war relationship, Queen Vashti loses and King Xerxes loses. They both lose. He winds up winning the power play, but losing everything that mattered to him. His reputation, his, his, uh, the display of his wealth and his power, he lost it. And now he has to go and find a new queen. If you believe the solution to your relational problems is winning the tug of war, you're in trouble. Authority is not the issue in relationships. If you have more authority, it will not fix dysfunction. If you have a dysfunctional relationship, having the final say does not fix it. You understand that? Just because you get people to listen to you does not mean that you will put it in the right direction. Each person has the ability to act independently. And relationships, healthy relationships, are about two people who could act independently, who don't need to act together, who don't need one another to be okay, but choose to put their lives together. They choose to each time, each day. They do not demand or impose relationships that that do that are not healthy. God has given you the responsibility for you. The choices that you can make, the decisions that you can make, the, the things that you choose to believe in, those are yours. And then God has given you through relationship the opportunity and the invitation to be connected to others. And so I would say to you, Esther 1 is an example of how to not do marriage. Maybe you think that if you just had more money, your marital problems would go away. I hope that Esther 1 tells you that no matter how much money you have, unless you relate in healthy ways, you still have problems. You still wind up in lose-lose situations. So lots of people use this technique. Lots of people use this technique even in the relationship with God. Let me just warn you about this. I believe prayer is an amazing gift from God. 
that we get to go before the throne of God, we get to take our petitions, our heartache, we get to pour it out before Him, that we don't have to censor ourselves, we can give God exactly what we're feeling and thinking, and then we can hear from God. We can lift one another up in prayer, we can ask God to to do things through the power of Jesus Christ. I believe it's a wonderful privilege. But your prayer life really indicates how your relationship with God is, what you believe about relationships. Because if your prayer life is... I will go to God and I will pray and pray and pray and that will make God do what I think He should do. You're in a tug of war with God. I can tell you who's going to win that tug of war, by the way. In other words, your relationship with God is not about going to God and trying to get Him to be obligated to doing what you'd like. A lot of people think that if you start coming to church, you clean up your language, you give to the church, you help other people, you do good, you try to stop doing bad. If you do all this good stuff, then God will have to do good stuff for you. We don't say it that clearly, but that's kind of what we believe. I don't know how many conversations I've had where somebody said to me, well, I started doing the right thing and then everything went wrong in my life and so I just gave up. What did they believe? They believed that when I started doing the right thing, it obligated God to make my life smooth and easy. And when life got hard, it was like, well, you, you, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain, God, right? So in our relationship with God, we don't want to get into a tug of war where we believe somehow we can maneuver God into this corner and make Him do what we want Him to do because real healthy relationships are based on respect and trust. Respect and trust. I will not dishonor someone. I will not disallow their voice. I will not silence them if I respect them. And if someone makes a different choice than I think they should, if I respect them, I will trust them. In other words, in my relationship with God, if God doesn't answer my prayer, do I still trust Him or not? Is my trust based on whether God does what I think He should do? We get into these leverage relationships all over the place. And I'm saying it doesn't work with God. As a matter of fact, as you read the Bible, the Bible talks about the way that we relate to God is through faith. Another word for faith? Trust. You cannot know God without faith, without trust. You can't even know Him without it, right? So if I want a healthy relationship with my Heavenly Father, it has to be by trust. I don't know what's coming tomorrow, but I know who's there. I know He'll be with me. I read a story today about uh, a doctor trying to explain uh, death to one of his patients. And he, the patient said, I'm, I'm afraid of death. I don't know what it's like. and he, uh, It's just a great unknown. And the doctor had this, this door closed and there was a scratching at his door. I guess it was at his home or whatever. And it was his dog. And he said, he opened the door up. The dog raced into the room. He said, the doctor said, listen, my dog's never been in this room before. But he wanted in. Not because he knew what it was like, but because he knew who was here. And I say the same thing to you about God. You may not know what tomorrow holds or two weeks from now or two years from now or a thousand years from now, but you know who will be there. Do you trust Him that He'll be there and it will be good because He's there? Or do you need to know how the path goes in order to decide whether it'll be okay? Trust. So that's how we do it with God. Now with one another, what I would say to you is this. If you find yourself right now in a relationship that is a tug of war, It's a power play. It's a battle of wills. It is not a healthy relationship. And I would say you need to seek God to be disentangled from that relationship. 
maybe you're the perpetrator. You're the bully. Everybody's got to listen to you. You're the final say. You're the loudest. You're the angriest. You're the one who blows up. And everybody's got to listen to you. That's not healthy. I know something about you. If that's you, you don't feel close to anybody. You feel like people are far, far away from you and you ache to be close to them. You know why? Because you don't respect anyone and you don't trust anyone. It's got to be your way or no way. And if someone tries to, to cross you, it's going to be this huge, huge explosion. I would say to you, why don't you lay that down today? Why don't you trust God and why don't you let God teach you how to have a healthy relationship with someone else? Maybe you're in a relationship today where someone is bullying you. They, they have power over you or they know how exactly how to push your buttons or, or to hit your spots of guilt, whatever it is. You feel obligated to them and they are using it to make decisions kind of for you. I would say today, you need to seek God about letting go of that relationship. Not that that person has to be out of your life, but you have to relate to them in a different way. You have to let go of what they think and what they want and what they feel. You have to let go of your fear of their displeasure of whatever you're going to do. You've got to let go of it. And you've got to let God teach you how to have a healthy relationship. And so let's take those kind of lose-lose scenarios and ask the Lord to teach us in this new year about how to get on the path to healthy, life-giving relationships. Part of the way that we express Jesus Christ to the world around us is by how we love one another. That's relationship, isn't it? And so wouldn't the enemy love to get in there and make our relationships dysfunctional? So that the love doesn't come out, we interact just like the rest of the world. It's all a power play about who wins and who loses, who has a bigger mouth, who has a bigger bat, who has a bigger club, who can make it happen like they want it to happen. When God calls us to love. For some of you, it's crisis right now. It's crisis time. You need to do this or else. For others, it's not that bad yet, but you know enough to know that it needs to change. So I'm going to invite you, as we close in prayer, to make that choice and then to follow it up as we leave this place today. And so let's close in prayer. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and just close in prayer, asking God to teach us this year how to have relationships like He wants us to. Let's pray.